Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 23 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hello Hypnosis friends and a warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again in my own highly biased opinion I think I have a yellow brick road of a show lined up for you today. In a short while I'll be sharing with you an interview with the hypnotherapist, stage hypnotist and trainer heralding from across the Atlantic Mr Paul Ramsey. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis has featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media, but also comment on some of the content of that media stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest Paul Ramsey this week. We shall be exploring how to make hypnosis education and training better than it currently is. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. This podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as many of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and stance, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub, and all of whom, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have great respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. You can add your thoughts, comments and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the Hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. So first of all today is this week's interview. I'm delighted to be welcoming Paul Ramsey. Over the years, over the years that I've been familiar with Paul, um, and, and I've been aware of his work and we've been connected online since what seems like the start of the internet. I like the way that he approaches things professionally, diligently, and his stage shows in particular are incredibly fun and tasteful, where you know the participants are being cared for, are enjoying themselves, and not being belittled in any way. My encounter with him here for Hypnosis Weekly kept doing what Hypnosis Weekly has been doing, reminding me of how lovely and wonderful the hypnosis community really can be. My work does often re-establish my faith in human beings and reminds me of how great people are. So get comfy, my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea, enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to have with me the one and only Mr. Paul Ramsey. Paul, welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Aw, thank you so much for having me, Adam. I'm so happy to be here. Great, great. So, let's uh, let's learn a little bit about you. Um, tell us, you know, how you got into this field. Um, tell us about your background and how you've arrived at where you are now. You know, where you where you travel the U.S and you perform, and you do all kinds of other things. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how you got to that stage, what your background was, how you got into this field. Uh, well, um, I got into this field in the most uh, broad and generic sense, like most other hypnotists get into this field. And by that, I mean, and please uh, tell me if this, have you ever met a, a hypnotist who said, I knew when I was 10 I wanted to be a hypnotist? Not very often. <laughs> right? Like, so I, I sort of, most of my colleagues that I meet when we have this chat, um, it's always sort of a I stumbled into it somehow thing, right? And, and that was certainly the case for me. Uh, I was formally educated to be an English teacher. And right, so, right. Um, yeah, I went to university and uh, I got a, a degree to teach English. And I actually got a second degree. I got a bachelor's in English teaching and then I got a master's in secondary education. And uh, I started teaching at a public school here in the United States. I did that for three years. And I liked it. 
I, I guess I just didn't like it enough. I didn't like it at the level that I had set some sort of expectation that that I would enjoy it. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and you know, here in the states, I don't know how it is in England, but uh, here in the states, um, public school teachers aren't paid very well, and and so I was really living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, right. Yeah. You know, and I, and I was coaching. Um, I was coaching uh, football as well, and and I was coaching uh, softball, and I was doing things to make extra money come in, and I did them because I enjoyed them, but I got a small stipend for those extra duties as well, and I still was just getting by all the time. Yeah. And so I, after three years of that, I just I said, you know, I just don't enjoy this enough to to live this way. So um, I I left and I went back to university as a as a worker, and I I ran a residence hall, a dormitory, yeah. Yeah. Uh, at the University of New Hampshire, and uh, it let me use some of my educational skills with students. Um, and, I, and I really enjoyed that a lot. I felt like I was working with students who more so than in, in, in secondary school, uh, these university students wanted to be there, they were excited to be there, and they wanted to have a great experience. And so I did that job for five years. Well, one small part of that job was that I had 163 residents living in my dormitory, and um, part of my job was I needed to put on occasional social programming for them. So they just had you know, something to do instead of running about and, and just partying all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and one of those programs that I would do every year is I would hire a retired hypnotist to come in and give a demonstration in the main lounge of my building. Cool. Uh, yeah. And he had never done, uh, he had had a, a, a consulting hypnotism practice for 18 years. Uh, he had never done stage hypnotism, but he would do some some fun things that he knew would keep their interest. And each year he'd show up, uh, you know, I'd let him into the building, we'd chat for a bit, the students would come down, he'd do the demonstration, the students would leave, he'd linger and we'd chat some more. And After three years of doing that, he was telling me a story uh, about a client session he had had that was really sort of fascinating. And when he finished the story, I said, I said, gosh, that is just so cool. I would love to learn how to do that. And he right away said, I'll teach you. I think you'd be great at it. <laughs> And, yeah. and I, I wasn't quite prepared for that. <laughs> so, so, so I put it off for a whole year. Uh, you know, and I didn't have a clear sense of, I really did mean that I thought it would be neat to learn, but I didn't know what I would really do with it. Mm. And, and the, the next year when I brought him back again, um, I said, hey, does that offer still stand? And he said, yeah. And I, thought, I said, all right, let's do this. So I started meeting with him and he taught me the basics. He got me to the point where he said, all right. You can start practicing with people, just hypnotizing people. No, no suggestions. Just get them into state, get them out of state, and that's it. I said okay. So I had, a, you know, like I said, I had 163 students in my building. I started, you know, saying, if you want to know what it's like to be hypnotized, come on down. Yeah. And uh, they, they, they were constantly coming down. They were fascinated by it, and they were so curious. And that's what I found all these years later. People are so genuinely curious about about hypnotism, and so. Um, you know, I, I started practicing, and and once I started doing it, I thought, okay, there's something here. There's something really great here. Yeah. And I realized, I sort of had this light bulb moment where I realized that hypnotism would afford me the opportunity to do the two things I had always had a sense that I wanted to do. And the first thing is, ever since I was a kid, I wished I could be an entertainer. Um, and the other thing, though, was I always had a very consistent pull uh, an urge in my life that I wanted to feel like I was making a difference for people. So, um, you know, that's where I think the teaching thing had really come from was I had always admired and respected my teachers and I knew they had made a difference in my life. So, you know, hypnosis, hypnotism had really, I was like, man, I can do both. I can spend some time on stage and have fun, be an entertainer, but I can also meet with people and consult with people and help people change their lives. So uh, so I said, all right, you need to up the ante a bit. So I, I went and I, I got certified and I got trained. I knew I couldn't just run around, right, and be like, well, this guy taught me in my living room. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I went out and I got certified uh, here in the States with the National Guild of, of Hypnotists. And that was in 2004. And uh, I knew also that if I, if I kept it, if I kept my university position and did it on the side, I knew I would never really work hard at it. I just know myself well enough to know that I would sort of take the easy way. I knew that I needed to put myself in a sort of position of pressure 
And so, yeah. Uh, yeah, so after my fifth year, by the time I got certified and everything, and a whole other year had gone by, um, and uh, after my fifth year at the university, I said, all right, we need to really do this. If you're serious, you got to commit. And so I told them I would be leaving the position. I sold my car, which was uh, the only car I had ever wanted. I had a, a Jeep Wrangler Sahara edition. It was loaded, and I had paid it off early. So this was my baby, you know, Adam and I. And I sold it off. I sold it off. I took the money from that and put it in the bank, so I'd have some sort of a safety net if the business was slow at first and I needed to pay my rent. And I jumped in with both feet, and that was 2004. It was the best thing I ever did. And so you know, here I am now, and I, I tour nationally, and I consult, and I train, and I, I do it all, and I love it. It's the best thing I ever did. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's wonderful to hear. You know, I'm, I'm, I love to hear that. Well, one of the things, one of the things that I found to be quite centrally uniting across the professionals and the real leaders in the field that I encounter and talk to um, on this podcast has been their enthusiasm and love for the field, um, and that really comes through. Um, and, and I love to hear about people making a very, um, a very particular choice about going into it and going into it in the way in which you have. Um, so let, let let's talk let's talk hypnosis then. Yep. Let's just tell me, um, you know, how, how do you define hypnosis, and not <laughs> not just how do you define it now? And hey, I know this is this is a hot potato, um, <laughs> um, but but you know, how did you how did you then arrive at that de- definition, and how do you how do you tend to explain hypnosis to your clients, your audiences, and perhaps you know if you get stuck in someone uh, someone's kitchen at the party, you know, yeah. um, um, tell us a little bit about that. I, you know, I focus the most when I'm trying to explain it on people on on two concepts really, and I say, focused attention and dissociation. Right. So yeah. you know whatever, however I string my sentences together, what I'm always trying to really come across to people with is this idea that that hypnosis is about narrowing your attention and getting more absorbed in whatever experience you're having at that time. Mm-hmm. And that when you do that, there is some level of dissociation that occurs, right? We we sort of we step out of all the other parts of the current experience we're having, all the clutter and the extra data that's coming at us. And and to some extent, I've found over a decade of doing this that we even oftentimes sort of step out of our real time for lack of a better word, normal experience, right? Like we get more into whatever the internal uh, meaning-making experience that we're having is. And so there's this, there's this level of dissociation that occurs there. That, that's what I try to explain to people. How's that? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes a lot of a sense. A lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um. Um. um in particular, the, the the absorption, the focus. You know. Um, yeah. um, that, that 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 really rings true very much with me. Um. Mm. um have, has that changed at all over the years, or have, has that been something that's been quite solid and quite central as you've as you've gone on and as you've progressed? Well, it has changed a little bit. In the early years, I focused more on the idea that. Um, this whole idea of bypassing the critical faculty. I really focused on how do we how do we bypass our critical thinking when we go into hypnosis and how does that make us somehow more open to suggestion. And I think those are still elements of the overall process and important elements at that. But I really um, have come to see after having all this time, what really seems to matter is the way that people get absorbed. Uh, that absorption is really important to them integrating whatever suggestions and ideas and, and this process of making meaning. Because I think ultimately that's what it's all about, right? It's about how do we make meaning of whatever is being brought to us, whatever sensory experiences or whatever um, uh, abstract concepts are being shared with us or even uh, you know more concrete literal concepts. Uh, that are being talked about. It's all about how absorbed do we get in the process of making meaning out of that somehow. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of a shift that's occurred for me over the years there. I like to hear that. And um, I'm, I'm also interested and in, 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 intrigued as well with regards to, you know, do, do, you, do you explain hypnosis in the same way to perhaps clinical clients or, or, and, and students as you do to audiences when you are performing? Um, um, or, or are there some finer distinctions between the two based upon you know the difference of the context and and so on? Yeah, for the this is a great question. For the most part, I do explain it the same way. If there's any finer distinctions that I make, 
it's um, when I work on stage, I spend more time eliminating fear and and working yeah, yeah. to explain the things that I know that people come in, the myths and misperceptions that people come in with. I find that with consulting clients, they still have those, right? Because they've watched the yeah. same TV shows and movies that, that we all have watched that, that sort of give them those myths and misperceptions. But just by the nature that they really are coming because they want help with something, you know, the fear isn't so n- nearly much an issue. As with folks who come in to catch a show, they really might just be coming in to catch a show and have yeah. no desire to be hypnotized at all. Yeah. But if I could get them to eliminate that fear you know, and maybe get them to, to give it a go, something wonderful could happen. And that's what I, you know, that's what's so important to me about doing the stage work. I know that some people in our community, our professional community, really don't like stage hypnotists out there doing what we do. But I think it's such an important opportunity to raise that curiosity level in people. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity to to be great ambassadors for, for hypnotism. I think we can have fun with it and leave people with a good taste in their mouth and not just have people be afraid of it. And, and I really work hard when I do my shows to, to do that. I really want people to come away from my shows more open to giving it a try rather than, than walking away from it and going, did you see that? Man, I'd never let anyone hypnotize me. <laughs> Sure, no. sure. I mean, th- I find that really refreshing. I mean, that's that, that's lovely to hear. Um, uh, and and it's 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 a really interesting debate. You know, I, I, I'm also I'm also of the opinion that uh, there's there's a there's a very specific skill set to be learned from from the guys that work on stage um, yeah. that is that is very um, applicable and relevant to people in, in, in a consulting room or in a therapy room. Yeah. Um, so, so Paul, tell me a little bit about um, y- your influences. Um, who are your major influences in the field? Are there some, some books and authors as well as teachers that have taught you more? Um, um, the kind of people that have been most influential upon you? Perhaps you could give us a little bit of insight as to why. Sure. Um, well, the first book I ever read was hypnotherapy by Dave Elman. Yeah. And so I think, you know, sort of whatever your your first exposure to the the content of the work is leaves a big impression on you. Yeah. And so while I wouldn't say that I'm an Elman style hypnotist, I have a great appreciation um for for what he contributed to the field. I've also been lucky enough to spend time with with Larry and Cheryl and and you know, they're still out trying to continue Mr. Elman's legacy, and I've had time. I've been able to interview them a couple of times and talk with them at conferences, and um, I just I, I really appreciate his contribution um, to our profession. Uh, so that's a that's a pretty big one, I think. Um, I also I know he's not. And a lot of people don't think of him as a hypnotist, but I'm I'm a huge fan of Anthony Robbins, sure. uh, and and you know Tony in his early years did. Uh, do Ericksonian uh, training and uh, and NLP training, and yeah. you know he totally gets, you know what we get. He totally understands the power of language uh, and and models and and all the stuff that we care about. And I've done um, I've done additional training uh, through his strategic intervention coaching program that literally changed my life. I mean, it it, it made me think about myself in. Uh, really powerfully different ways, and it informs a lot of the work I do with clients when I'm when I'm coaching and consulting today. Uh, so, so his work's been really important to me. Um, and then from there, honestly, a lot of the wor- stuff that I I care about, I really mean this. It almost sounds a little bit like I don't want anyone hearing this to think I'm just I don't know being cheeky or mm-hmm. uh, it's it's people like you. It's it's my colleagues. It's yeah. it's watching how passionate my colleagues are and watching how they develop strengths in things that, you know, like, you know, your our, our professional to, peers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the way that you use your passion for running and you connect it to your professional life. I love that. I'm like, I never, I'm like, it wouldn't have occurred to me to do that, you know, <laughs> because that's just, isn't a, a connection for me. Yeah. And I, and I have other colleagues that have done that 
And I love it. I just love seeing the way that you can connect what you care about to doing good work with people. And so I think there's a lot more, you know, um, I, I don't mean it in a way that's demeaning, but let's let's say that we're smaller examples, right? We're not Elman. We're not Erickson. We're not, you know, um, some of those bigger names. We're not Esdale. We're not, we're not Braid, right? Like, um, you know. But but they matter. They they pile up and and they contribute. And so I, I spend a lot of time paying attention to that stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, you know, I, I think um, um, really really paying attention to, to to leading professional peers is, um, um, is 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 such a good education to be had there. You know, the way they conduct themselves, the way they do what they do. Um, um, so, you know, anybody listening to that, I think that's a really important point you make. Um, tell me a little bit, you know, Paul, obviously with, with, um, with having to entertain audiences as well as work in um, a clinical setting, um, I'm, I'm guessing that you get to see quite a lot of impressive applications and, you know, we, we have the potential for, for becoming blasé about stuff at times. But tell me, what, what are some of the more impressive applications of hypnosis that you've, that you've borne witness to directly? Ah, that's a great question. Um, I think I, I always am amazed when I see colleagues who are really good and I, and, and, and so I'm, I'm, diff, I'm distancing myself right here in the way I construct this purposely pain management yeah like I can do it but I'm not great at it hmm. and I'm amazed when I get to see colleagues who are really helping take people's pain away and giving them the relief they need yeah. um, you know I, I get just amazed by that um, I I love the way to me, and, and if this is uh, too much of a digression, just shape me back, Adam, but I do think it relates is to me, what I really get amazed by isn't so much sometimes the hypnosis itself, because to me, that's a delivery system. It's a tool. Yeah, to yeah. me, what's really what sets professionals apart in our world, I think, and this is what I keep focusing on and trying to really get better at, because I'm like, I know I can hypnotize people. I know I'm good at hypnotizing people. It's how do you really empower people to change? Mm -hmm. How do you give people a framework for change? And how do you really make people feel that they are capable of doing it? Yeah. And so that's what I, when I look at these different ways that, that people have found to get people to embrace change, because even though clients come to us and they, and they want to change, Right, and we believe that they just struggle with it so much. They think somehow they can't, or they just feel like they don't have the right skill, or they they don't have the right model. And and that's always the part that I I struggle with. I do. I, I think why can I do it with one person and it works fabulously, and then I take the same technique or the same strategy and I use it with someone else and it just falls utterly flat. Mm -hmm. you know? I, I love this idea of developing belief um, in oneself. Um, um, you know, and, and being able to, to uh, one of the reasons that I spent such a large part of my own career working and, and researching self-hypnosis is because of this, this notion of building self-efficacy, you know, whereby people believe in their ability to, to do change. And, and so, you know, that really rings, rings a bell with me, that idea and that notion. And, uh, um, I'm, I, you know, I love people here. I, I love hearing people talking about that. Yeah. Um, um, I really do. Um, um, when you started out, then, because I, I mean, I mean, I, I loved, I loved hearing about some of your story earlier. Um, um, if you could go back to that time, or go yeah. back to that, that that you that was starting out, that was having that conversation with the retired hypnotist, um, 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 you know, knowing what you know now, is there anything that you would do differently with regards to your journey that where you've ended up where you are, or and is there any advice that the person you are today would give that younger you that perhaps you could extend to some of our listeners? You know, some of our hypnotists. Oh professionals yeah absolutely if i i have i got a whole list adam <laughs> <laughs> i the biggest mistake i made in my early years was i i tried to do too much and and i'll explain that so when i first got started in 2004 i started i saw the quickest way that i could support myself 
um, given my situation and my connections and stuff, was to really focus on stage hypnotism. Yeah. So I started doing that. But I also really wanted to do client work as well. And I and I, even though I could start doing stage hypnotism, I wasn't getting enough business to pay my bills just doing stage hypnotism. So what I ended up doing was sort of creating this like three or four headed monster, right? Like I was doing mm-hmm. stage hypnotism and I was trying to get clients and I was trying and I built. Um, I built an online store uh, where I was back when we were still selling CDs and I was I was selling CDs and then within a, uh, three years of being in practice, I got certified to be an instructor because I thought to myself at the time, even though I was like, well, I don't have a lot of experience yet, but I'm formally educated to be a teacher. So, <laughs> duh, like, you know, like, yeah. and, and, but what happened was I spread myself thin across all of those things. And so, quite frankly, I didn't do any of them particularly well. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's a big one that I would stress. And I do stress now when, I, when I'm training people. You know, I, I say, please don't, don't make this mistake that I made. Like, focus on one thing and get really, really good at it. And then when you're like, all right, I'm, I'm rocking this. I'm doing it. And it's time to do more. Then pick that next thing and expand slow and steady. And, and I think if you do that, you can build yourself an empire, basically, you know. But, yeah, yeah. but I think what I, I see a lot of people doing is, you know, really focusing on, but I got to make money. I got to make money and trying to, you know, throw as many different, cast as many different lines out there as they can to try to reel something in. And and so I, I see a lot of folks who, you know, they mean well and, and they're they're decent, but they're just not great at anything. And yeah, I, I, that's no way to be. You know? No, 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 no. That, that, that's some good advice there. Um, um, that's really good to hear. Um, tell me, tell me, Paul, um, um, I tend to find there's um, a very polarized opinion when I start talking about the E word. Um, um, and that is about with regards to evidence uh, mm. in the field of hypnosis. Um, tell me, tell me, what are your thoughts about evidence-based approaches to hypnosis? Um, I I love it, and I, it's one of the things I admire about you is that you're so consistently committed to that. And um, but I also think what I've learned over a decade of doing this is. Um, nothing trumps people's confirmation bias, <laughs> mm. right? So you can throw down all the stacks of studies and, and, and evidence-based stuff that you want. Um, ultimately, if people just don't want to believe in it or they, they're afraid, like they stay not believing in it or afraid. Mm. Um, what I care more about in that regard then is I, so I say, all right, so I recognize that and I'm not going to spend a lot of time out evangelizing. Sure. Right. I, I don't spend a lot of time trying to convince people that this stuff is great and that it works. What I try to do is focus more on, do I have an evidence based approach for what I choose to do with clients? Mm. Right is really like where the rubber meets the road, and so that's why I'm working more and more now. Um, I was lucky enough to uh, connect with a cognitive neuroscientist um, and, and, and doctor who's not in current practice. He got out of the medical field, and he wants to get into hypnotism. And so, you know, we're forging this partnership now, where that's what we're really doing is we're trying to take what he knows about neuroscience. And what I know about hypnosis and see if we can build some kind of an effective bridge that that really informs, you know, the way we do things. Because, Adam, you know this. If you talk with most of our colleagues about why they employ the tactics and strategies that they employ, the most common example or reason you're going to get back from it is because that's how I was taught. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And people remain very loyal to that. Yeah. Um, um, the way yeah. that they're originally taught and struggle to ever question it. And yeah. sometimes, however nicely or politely or well-intentioned you are when you question it, um, um, you know, they dig their heels in and, and very often become quite defensive about that. Um, um, I must say, that is one of my, my favourite answers to that particular question throughout all of our for all of this podcast that I've done to date, you know, I, I really, really enjoyed that response. Um, I'm, I'm going to play it back and listen to that a couple of times before this goes live <laughs> because I, I really enjoyed that, you know. Um, 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 now, um, 
Um, we're going we're gonna to be talking some more in a short while. Um, um, Paul, anybody that wants to investigate a bit more about you, your work, and so on, where can they go? What can they do? Uh, well, uh, if they want to look more at the work that I'm doing with Dr. St. Victor, uh, our, our video blog series that we're working on, we took a bit of a break and we just met and we're going to get back into it uh, very soon. That's at hypnoticthoughts.com, which yeah. is our, our blog site. And uh, it's, it's largely video-based. We, we yeah. do these discussions and we talk and we discuss articles and research and stuff. So uh, hypnoticthoughts.com. If uh, folks want to learn more about um, the the stuff that I'm trying to develop in terms of training and education, yep. I'm just getting it started, and so please be patient with me. Um, but that site is besthypnosistraining.com, yep. and and my goal there is to really build a learning community for people who have all different levels of interest in hypnotism. So right now we've got a free intro to hypnosis course. That sort of lets people dip their toe in the water, you know, and uh, eventually we're going to launch, uh, very soon we're going to launch certification programs as well where you can get trained online and, and some of them involve some in-person training as well. I'm trying to develop a whole spectrum of, of uh, products and services that will let people find to what extent they want to invest in hypnotism you know and and serve those needs yeah yeah you know ever since ever since we crossed paths um for the first time which just seems to be you know years and years ago like i was saying (laughs) to you when we were just chatting before we started recording it seems to be just like forever um um, every every encounter i ever had with you was always a thoroughly enjoyable happy and professional one you know really well done Um, um um, with all of the things that you did and that you took your hand to, so everybody listening, you know, do go and check out um, both of those websites, and we'll put some we'll put some links to both of those um, um, on the on the website for those uh, of you that are listening. Um, we will be back with Paul some more uh, discussion, and and uh, we're going to get some insight from Paul um, um, again in just a few moments. <music> I really enjoyed that. We'll be back with Paul shortly. Now let's have a look at this week's hypnosis in the news. Let's have a couple of success stories this week, shall we? The first story this week is covered by the majority of tabloid newspapers and is entitled Red Bull Addict Who Drank 24 Cans a Day Manages to Ditch Habit Thanks to Hypnosis. Um, the, the the link that I've given you is uh, in the mirror. Um, and yes, this is a story about a lady called Sarah Wetherill uh, from Coventry who used to drink 24 cans of Red Bull a day, spending a massive £5,460 a year on the stuff. Blimey, if I have one of those with all that ca- caffeine and refined sugar, I, I tend to feel unusual and peculiar. I should probably say more peculiar, but 24 cans, that's nuts. Have you seen the episode of Family Guy where Peter Griffin gets addicted to Red Bull? I, you know, I think it's hilarious. So therefore, on the Hypnosis Weekly website, on the page of this episode, I've included a clip of Peter Griffin under the influence of lots of Red Bull. Um, um, it's lovely. Anyway, um, uh, so Sarah Wetherill had hypnotherapy and following one single session was cured of her addiction. What a wonderful success story. She's quoted as saying, I am convinced I won't have another can. I feel like a different person. That's wonderful. Um, The hypnotherapist that worked with her is apparently, and I quote the newspaper directly, a leading name in cognitive behavioral hypnotherapy. I've never heard of it. Um, I guess I'll just have to explore my textbooks harder. Um, But we do that though, don't we, us hypnosis professionals? We pitch ourselves as leaders of the field, when in reality, not many people are really full-on leaders in this field. Uh, There are many people who are well-known in certain circles, but that does not make you a leading name in the field. I've been quoted as that uh, more than once myself, and yet I've been and spoken and lectured at conferences all around the world where fellow professionals have very humbly never heard of me. Um, um, You know, it's a funny thing. Anyhow, our second story. Um, New mum, Claire Sweeney, turns to celebrity hypnotherapist to beat sugar addiction. Um, There's a story in The Express. I mean, it's been in a couple of other media outlets as well. Former TV soap star and reality TV star um, and stage star Claire Sweeney 
found that during pregnancy she became addicted to sugar and sugary things. Uh, this is doubly interesting for me as I've not eaten refined sugar for a fair while now um, and I have an interest in how damaging it is and so on. Uh, but that's digressing and is highly irrelevant to the story. Uh, but Claire Sweeney used hypnotherapy to stop herself from binging on sugar and sugary foods and uh, she's had one session uh, at the point that this press release went out and she'd already noticed the results but plans on seeing the hypnotherapist for more sessions. Good on you Claire Sweeney, I like her. Now this week's third news story makes me happy in the same way that last week's third story does and it's entitled Truro Actors Set to Take Unique Hypnosis Play to Edinburgh Fringe. So this is a story about a theatrical couple from Truro in the West Country here in the UK who are set to take their latest show to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, where are the Edinburgh Festival Fringe rather, um, with a unique combination of a play using hypnosis. Yes, this is Paul Henshaw and Anna Scutt and they're set to perform at the Fringe with their, 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 their production, The Marvellous Mechanical Mesmerist. Um, and it's set to a steampunk theme. Um, the couple who both have cerebral palsy will use their acting talents alongside their hypnosis skills for the play. Um, um, that is, they invite members of the audience up on stage um, who are then hypnotised to play other roles in the play, um, um, in, in their production. And I love that idea. Um, do go and have a read of the story, it's fascinating. Links to these stories are listed under this week's podcast entry on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Now then, next up we have this week's professional discussion then. I ask all our guests about their favourite topics to discuss and if they have any subjects that they would prefer to discuss. You know, I ask that of them when, uh, when I ask them and when I do my best to attempt to persuade them to come and get involved in this. Um, in this in this podcast and this week's guest Paul Ramsey simply said he'd like to talk about hypnotism training and I didn't really pursue it there we didn't discuss it further and so we just fired from the hip with regards to this with his background in academic education institutions I think he makes some very interesting and valid points and I'd love to know your thoughts do get in touch and share them with me so here is this week's professional discussion with Paul Ramsey enjoy <music> So I'm delighted to welcome back uh, Paul Ramsey. Um, um, as you know, as you regular listeners will know, we um, we have a discussion each time round about a, a subject, uh, a matter, and uh, something that perhaps the our guest that week is passionate about or, or or is interested in discussing, and ideally something that I know a tiny bit about at the very least, in order that I can have some some modicum of a contribution to it. Um, um, so um, um, we're going to talk a little bit about, about, about hypnosis training and, and in particular one of the things that I was keen to ask Paul about and start to investigate with, um, with my guest Paul Ramsey today is with him having this such a solid background of formal academic education and having worked at, uh, within universities for example, uh, what sort of initial, initial differences he noticed between formal education and more standardized forms of education and 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 hypnosis the field of hypnosis and um, um Paul is there anything initially that, that that springs to mind before I start asking you further sort of more specific questions yeah well I mean the the first thing that springs to mind is is we're in a terrible state <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, generally speaking and and that's because uh, traditional education is not a business model. It has become a business model today uh, in, in some ways, but it, generally speaking, traditional education, primary school, secondary school, is a service rendered for community members, right? Mm -hmm. And so everyone pays in, they pay their revenue taxes, and it, and it creates a budget, and that school uh, system knows it's going to have to you know, run according to a budget, but it also knows it doesn't have to sell the education. Right. Uh, but in our professional world, in the world of hypnotism, uh, we have to sell hypnosis education 
And so what we end up doing is we build our educational model around the things that will ensure people give us their money. Yeah, and, yeah. and so what do we end up with? We end up with lower standards. We end up with um, uh, lower enrollment standards. And we end up with um, lower criteria for uh, certification. And we end up with, uh, quite frankly, uh, inferior teaching practices because we don't want to deter people from, from signing up, from, from buying in. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah I, I, I hear what you're saying there as well. You know, I, I think one of the things that I would consider, um, I'm adding to that list there as well, is the amount of time spent on the study very often does seem a bit inadequate to me yeah. um, with a lot of trainings that, that I encounter and that I see people doing. Um, um, because a lot of people want this this instant gratification that perhaps doesn't exist within, you know, the, the, the more formal structured education. Um, that is, you know, they want the qualification quickly. Yet, yeah. you know, with university, people accept the amount of time that it takes to get their degree or to get their master's or to go on and get other, other things. At school, people accept the period of time required. Um, right. yet, yet, you know, there seems to be a requirement for stuff to happen rapidly within within the field of hypnosis you know i want my qualification quite rapid and i i think and i don't know what your thoughts are on this is because very often people are also sold on um a, 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 an ideal and a vision about you know i want to become a hypnotherapist or i want to become um, um a professional hypnotist of some kind and they've got that vision they've got that idea of how they want their life to be and of course, they want that as quickly as possible. You know, Christmas can never come soon enough, right? Yeah. And um, um, and I think that sometimes that is it. it, it then over is overlooked what their, their vision. They just want to get from A to B as quickly as they possibly can, regardless of the depth and the quality and the breadth and standard of yeah. the education along the way. Uh, and I completely, I agree with that completely. And I understand why people feel that way. I lived it, you know. Mm. I went to university, right? I got the two degrees. And so by the time I got the two degrees and here I am thinking I want to make a change in my life, I remember thinking, <laughs> you know, I don't want to spend the amount of time all over again that I just spent to get into this new career. So, you know, I completely took advantage of the way that the system currently works. And if I hadn't been able to do that, I don't know if I would be a hypnotist today. Yeah. So I, I really am sympathetic um, to that. But I also I think we have to push for some kind of a of a higher standard. And 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 I just really think that's important. I look at the other day, I was on one of my social media platforms and and um, someone that I'm you know, I don't even know the person, but somehow I, I ended up you know following him. It was probably a reciprocal follow, right? They probably followed me and I just followed him back. And they they put up a post that they were it was a stage hypnotist training program. Uh, you know, uh, make your deposit now to get in on our three day uh, stage hypnotism certificate program. Yeah. And I and I thought to myself, three days. Like would would you hire a plumber who trained for three days to fix your pipes? Would you would you hire an electrician? Yeah. So exactly. you know, you know, and um, I, um, yeah. Go yeah, ahead. Exactly. I I find um one of the one of the point. Yeah, I think you made a really important point um a moment ago that that I'd just like to to to, to come back on as well. You mentioned the enrollment process um and and the standards of enrollment. Uh, when you were talking about that, were you meaning that that we shouldn't just have an open gate to everybody and every and anybody regardless? Yeah, absolutely. People should be vetted. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, I'm really like, pleased to hear that. Yeah, and and that's not because, and I really don't want people listening to think that that I mean that 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 somehow I think some of us are better than others in terms of our basic human value. I don't mean that at all, but I. I think there's a there's this idea of qualification and you know it's not just put a PayPal button on your site and if people click the PayPal button and pay their money they're enrolled. I just don't see how that you know here's let me give you a concrete example Adam. I I have my current um stuff set up so that that's exactly what you cannot do. You cannot just click a button 
and and join my training program. You have to fill out an application, yeah. and I have to review it, and then I have to have a conversation with you, and I want to know first of all that that I think you're going to be able to become a competent practitioner. But the other side of it is for your benefit, whoever this hypothetical person is, yeah, this yeah. imaginary person is, I don't like the idea of pulling people in, taking their money, who are not going to seriously make a go of it. Sure, sure. Yeah. You yeah. know, how does that serve them in, in them creating a better life for themselves? Yeah. And, yeah. and I've been to um, conferences and conventions year after year after year. I try to go to something every year. Uh, and I don't try. I do. I go to something every year, at least one thing, one conference or convention. And for as long as I can remember, every time I go, I end up sitting in a session at some point where the facilitator says, Hey, so glad to have you all here. It's a you know, big opening, happy welcome. And then within the first 30 seconds, they go, let me just want, I want to get a sense of how my, what my audience is like today. How many of you are in full-time practice? Raise your hand if you're in full-time practice. And like every time, like maybe 10% of the audience raises their hand. Okay, all right. They move right on. Okay, how many of you are in part-time practice? How many of you are in part-time practice? Raise your hand. And like another like 10%, maybe 15% of the hands go up. Mm. <laughs> and so I think, what yeah. system are we building where like maybe a third of our population is in part-time or full-time practice? Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting and valid point. Yeah. Um, um, and, and one of the things that I find so interesting about that as well is because, you know, surely it's in our interest as training establishments to to be represented as best as we possibly can by the people that have trained with us mm -hmm. out there in the world. Um, um, and that, you know, and that they are having successful careers. I can't imagine anything better for my own training college than to have people, you know, with, with very, that, that are graduates of this college going on to have very successful, credible careers as, mm -hmm. hypno, as hypnotherapists. Yes. Um, yes. Um, and to simply churn people out simply churn people out um at at perhaps a, a lower standard or less w w with less quality for example um i don't think is is a very viable business model and and it's reflective of what has really developed here in the united states at least i can't speak for elsewhere but here in the united states that's what our our institutional system has become right is is now we're pushing for everyone to get a college education and they're doing the same things there you know it's because it's become a business model when you shift to a business model and not a human enrichment model <laughs> you know i don't i don't even know what you really should call the model that i'm trying to talk about but but i i know um that you know we have young people all over the united states who are taking on massive amounts of debt to earn a piece of paper that a lot of the times it's the same situation will not get them the job that they've been prepared for mm. and so they end up you know going and finding some other kind of job um, and and it's not helping them pay off their debts and all this stuff and so you know we're not at that level of scale right in our profession we're not scaled that way but we're doing the same thing we've made it a business model and people are suffering because of it. There's, mm -hmm. We're just not helping people the way we should. I don't like that. It's, it's not the way I want to lay down at night and go to sleep thinking about how I'm trying to do my part to make the world a better place. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I suppose one of the one of the difficulties and one of the challenges that we have with the field of hypnosis is is you know what what curriculum is taught and and how is. And how is how I mean how is it delivered first you know uh, uh, um, as well, but also you know, you know what what curriculum actually gets taught and what doesn't, because you know a lot of people go on um, a seven day NLP practitioner training for example and come out there and say you know I yeah I did I did my training in hypnosis as well you know I I, I I've become a hypnotist there and essentially they've learned they've learned that the sort of Ericksonian component of an NLP training and know very little about any alternative models of which you know that the rest of the field is vast in comparison yeah and um, um so you know the kind of robustness and depth and breadth of their knowledge and understanding is is utterly limited 
um, and, and it's unlikely that they're going to have a, a, or build a successful or credible career based upon that piece of information alone. And so I, I suppose one of the challenges that we have within this field is, you know, heck, um, um, any, anybody that's a regular listener will know that we struggle, you know, we st- how much we struggle in this field just to define what hypnosis is, let alone agreeing, attempting to agree upon what ought to be taught and what ought to be um, a curriculum or what ought to be um, a, you know, a comprehensive central component of you know, a certain level of standardization for education that people should be getting. Um, yeah. Even, even you know, even the the NG, you know the NGH in the US um, doesn't have the same central curriculum to to organising bodies here in the UK. And I'd say that the US and the UK are probably the two the two most sophisticated and comprehensive places to go and get education with hypnosis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so I, you know, I, I think I think we struggle, and we we do tend to struggle because of the very nature of the field sometimes, and um, and. You know, a lot of people that I have encountered, um, very often, you know, it, it, because of the commercial nature of the way in which things have gone that we've already discussed, are not necessarily interested in having to read more books or having to understand more studies or, or cite research or know a wide range of different things. Instead, you know, they need to be able to feed their families and so on and therefore are less interested Right. In, in 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 broadening the range of education. Right. Absolutely. I agree with that. And and I say, and that's the difficulty, right? Is everything you said just makes sense to me. And even though it makes sense, I say, and that's all of that is why we have this problem, right? Is we're, we have these competing needs. And 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 I think we just, if we want our profession to grow and to to get stronger, and we have to think long term about. How do you really grow a body of professionals who know as much as they can and can get great things done for people and who can really advance the cause of our profession? And so, you know, I don't have that answer. I I wish I did. I have some ideas. um, But I think that ultimately, you know, at some point what it's going to come down to is the various organizations understanding that if we need to create sustainability, right? Like we have to create a sustainable system. And that means somehow putting your individual interests aside and and working together to to create some kind of a standard. Yeah. And, and, you know... um, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, that is, um, um, it's, it's a wonderful, it's wonderful to hear that being said. And it's an, it's an ideal that I share with you wholeheartedly. Um, um, and I hope that anybody that encounters me knows that of me. Um, yeah. um, um, one of the things, one of the things that I, you know, I, I, I tend to encounter a lot throughout my own work is that, um, you, you know, there is a really good body of evidence and research to support our field okay it's not as big as we would like but there does tend to be quite an absence of it from a lot of training and one of the things that i've found throughout my own phd research for example has been that the academics that i encounter within universities and the the scholars and researchers that have contributed so much to to the field um are, are really quite disinterested in you know building bridges with frontline hypnosis professionals yeah um, or yeah. hypnotherapists and and on the to the same end i find that there's quite a lot of resistance from frontline hypnotherapists to academics and mm. so on and very often because they're that they're often taught pseudoscience on the front line and mm-hmm. they're often taught a lot of stuff that's a little bit nonsensical um mm-hmm. and perpetuates myth and misconception and when an academic suddenly tells them something different they get that you know that they have some resistance towards them and so there's there's a chasm that exists between the the between frontline hypnotherapists and hypnosis professionals and academics that i think if it were bridged it would make the field of hypnotherapy and the education standards that we have so much better and so much different um 
Although, heck, how do you get these guys to be friends? <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I think one, this is not a full answer, but it's it's a, like a seed that I would plant, is I would say somehow, this goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, we have to create a culture around hypnotism where there are kids who are saying, when they're 10, I want to be a hypnotist when I grow up. It can't just always be this add-on career, right? If yeah. if we make it the type of career that people can aspire to early on in life, then they could go off to university for it, right? Yeah. And then they would come up through a system where they would be doing the research and they would be working with mentors, professors, and TAs, right? And And they would it would shift the whole culture, right? And then they could decide, just as we do today, would you like to stay in the research realm or do you want to go out into the world and practice? Yeah. But if yeah. you stay in the research realm, the purpose of the research is to publish, mm. right? That's their model that they, they come up with. And, and, and that's, so that's what they focus on, right? Like you get what you focus on. Yeah. And so, you know, they're not thinking, I really need to get out there and share this with my colleagues on the front lines because they just don't look at it that way. They think my colleagues are the people doing research like me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's where there is, there's, I love it. There is a chasm. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's what's got to be addressed, I think, somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Attempting to bridge it is something that, and, and one of the ways in which, you know, I've, um, I've wanted to, in, in more recent years in particular, conduct my own business is to try and get people excited about what's what's to be discovered by by by, by going and looking um, over there and so on um, um, and um, you know hey Paul I, I you know you and I need to get together and have, <laughs> have some pints and put this right and sort this out but like you said <laughs> right when I was interviewing you earlier you know one of the things that you attempt to do, um, um, which is very similar to one of the things I attempt to do, and most of the people that I think make a really good contribution to this field, is you know representing uh, the field well when you're when you're performing, representing the field well when you're doing therapy, representing the field well when you're communicating online, and 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 attempt to create that culture um, as much as we can, and those little things. Um, can build up to to create um, um, more of a more of a sense of something uh, within the field, even if you know proper structures are not being put in place. Right. Yeah. Um, um, and and I really appreciate what you've said here. Now, um, um, as as always, we we've run out of time, um, <laughs> um, and and you know I, I could just go on and on with this. Um, so maybe we'll have to have you back for another edition at some stage in the future. Well, um, be, it's been be a great. real, real pleasure having you on the show, Paul. So um, my thanks, thanks to you uh, for coming on, sharing your insight. Um, there will be links to all kinds of stuff uh, relating to Paul's work. Um, do go and have a look at it. Uh, uh, he's one of the loveliest guys out there. Um, Paul Ramsey, thank you very much for being on Hypnosis Weekly. Thank you, Adam. I'm so grateful for having this time with you. I'm really, really grateful. Thank you. Pleasure. Enjoyed that discussion. Some fascinating concepts, ideas there. Links to, uh, links to Paul's website and um, um, some of the bits and pieces mentioned earlier are all available at the Hypnosis Weekly website. So this week's Hypnosis Fact of the Week and it's quite a simple one. A wide variety of hypnotic inductions can be effective. Ta-da, that's it. Sounds pretty obvious, right? But for example, inductions that emphasize alertness can be just as effective as inductions that promote physical relaxation. Um, and that's certainly according to an impressive study conducted by Eva Banier in 1991. Um, which showed um, um, individuals within the study would be asked, for example, to ride on a stationary bicycle and they'd get themselves pumped up and their metabolism would be high, yet they'd still be very responsive to hypnotic suggestions. And I've talked about that already 
um, 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 in a previous edition, showing that hypnosis is not relaxation and relaxation is not required for hypnotic responsiveness, for example. However, the same study also used contrasting hypnotic inductions, ones that use relaxation and ones that emphasized alertness, and both were proven to be effective. I think you choose your induction based upon the client and their preferences, but also based upon the nature of the therapeutic issue and, of course, based upon your own skill and preferences. If, if we deliver an induction in a confident and assured manner, you know, an appropriate induction delivered in a confident and assured manner, the client is going to perceive us as credible, is going to develop the therapeutic working alliance, and that in turn is likely to enhance the efficacy of the treatment, at least according to the the evidence. Now then, in our next edition, I'll be welcoming Romanian hypnosis trainer and hypnotherapist Eugene Popart. I interview him and we'll be examining an interesting hypnosis project that he has begun. I have many more exciting guests and we'll welcome to Hypnosis Weekly in the coming weeks. Uh, we'll be discussing, debating, celebrating, and above all, remaining friends. And to repeat, all the references made in the discussions along with related links are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions, so please do message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website. I'll make sure they're addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else and really help us to reach the hypnosis field. My thanks go to Paul Ramsey once again and thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.